Turn in your copy of the scriptures, if you would please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, you'll notice in your bulletin uh, the robust sermon outline you've been given on this particular day. And uh, I apologize for that. I was out of town last week and I was told that we were short-staffed in the office. I'm not sure all the details, but we were not going to be able to, just the stars weren't aligning. We were not going to be able to have a bulletin this week. So this week you get to take uh, your own notes. And if you are, though, if this kind of makes you twitch because you like to like, collect the whole set and trade them at parties, we're going to put the bulletin online uh, so you will have one to get at graceky.org uh, should you want that bulletin uh, anyway, that sermon outline anyway, but none for today, so just take your own notes. Last week, R- uh, Ryan Fultz did a wonderful job of taking us into Romans chapter 8, uh, Romans chapter 8, and he preached on verses 1 through 4. Uh, this week, what I'm going to do is I'm preaching verses 14 through 17, and I'll save you the details, but basically when we're making the uh, preaching schedule this year, this is just the way that it worked out that it would be best. I had a real heart and a passion to preach on these particular set of verses, but I couldn't do it next week, but I can do it this week, so we're going to, uh, next week, Ryan Foltz is going to preach on verses 5 through 13, so we'll still cover everything, three lefts make a right, we're going to get to where we need to go, it's not a big deal, but just wanted to make sure that you understood uh, where we are in Romans chapter 8, and there's a reason we're skipping ahead uh, to verse 14. Uh, however, since we haven't uh, covered the verses between Romans 8, verse uh, 5 and 13, what I'd like to do now, I'm going to read through the entirety of the text, Romans 8, verses 1 through 17, just to give us a little bit of background. Even though I'm not preaching through the entire text, this will get us to where we need to be to start uh, today. So, Romans 8, beginning in verse 1, uh, this is what the Word of God says. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. 
heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Father in heaven, we come before you asking you to do what only you can do, and that is to add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your holy word. Lord, we long to be changed, to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We long to understand your word and apply your word, and we know we cannot do that without your help. So, Lord, you've given us much grace, certainly in saving us. And now we ask, Lord, would you give us more? Lord, we boldly approach you and ask you to please, please, God, give us more grace even this very hour so that we might understand the word and be changed for your sake and for your glory. We ask this. Amen. So our text today starts in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Verse 14. So let's read that. Uh, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, verses like this should cause us to to pause. That's a weighty verse. uh, Because it's a qualifier, if you will, as to what a true believer, a true child of God looks like. It's a weighty verse. Take another look at it in your Bible and really understand those words and really read them slowly. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Uh, This verse is not a everybody hold hands and skip through the grass type of verse. It's an exclusionary verse. It's saying those that are led by the Spirit of God These are the children of God. It's also saying those who are not led by the Spirit of God, these are not the children of God. A a more literal rendering of the text would be all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Boom. It's pretty, pretty bold, pretty straightforward. And that's a weighty thing to say. Oftentimes in our day and age, perfectly good words and terms become what I like to say hijacked. Uh, by people, and because they become popularly known by their wacky hijackers, the rest of us avoid the term like the plague. I'll give you an example. Um, every time the word, or just about every time, most times in the New Testament, when you see the word church, uh, it is referring to a local church, an actual body of believers. But it's also true uh, that all believers, all Christians, are part of what is perhaps commonly known as the universal church, referring to the collective sum of all God's redeemed. Uh, The word Catholic is a synonym for universal or comprehensive. So so technically speaking, uh, you could say that you're part of the Catholic Church, meaning you're counted among all those who have ever been and ever will be saved. Technically speaking, that would not be an untrue statement. But you don't say that, do you? No, you don't say that because when Pete, if you were to say that, people would not think, oh, clearly he's talking about the universal church, the collective sum of all God's redeemed. People would say, oh, he's talking about Roman Catholicism. People would associate that with the Roman Catholic religion and not necessarily that you're part of the universal church. But technically speaking, you see my point, technically speaking, uh, to say that you're part of the Catholic church, that would be accurate, yet It's been hijacked. It's been changed. It's now associated with a smaller sum of people, uh, which is the Roman Catholic Church. So you don't don't use that term. Let me give you another example. Acts 1 and verse 8. Christ says, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. The apostles are told to be witnesses of Christ. In John 8, 58, Jesus identified himself as Jehovah God. So technically speaking, technically speaking... Uh, we could refer to ourselves accurately as uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. 
what? But the fact that you respond that way means that you know that that term, although technically correct, right? I mean, if you're a believer, you are a, a witness to Jehovah God's saving work in your life. You certainly exist at least in part to talk about the coming kingdom and the wrath to come and that there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to shun. So you could technically speaking uh, refer to yourself as a Jehovah's witness. Now, I would not recommend you do that. Why? Because of the reason that you all laughed. Because as you refer to yourself as a Jehovah's Witness, people are not going to associate yourself uh, with Jesus Christ, but with a cult. The term had been hijacked. Hijacked. Now, you could try to redeem the term Catholic, and you could try to redeem the term Jehovah's Witnesses and, like, you know, swim upstream and change the pattern of what everybody's going to believe, but it's probably beyond repair. So you just avoid it altogether. What comes to mind when you hear the term spirit-led or spirit-filled? Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. What comes to mind when you hear the term spirit-led? Now, in my experience, I'm just one person, just one man. In my experience, the vast majority of people who go out of their way to make sure I know they're spirit-led aren't. Uh, Why? Because here's why. You don't tell somebody that someone is alive and P.S. they're also breathing, right? Like one assumes the other. If someone's alive, they are in some way, shape, or form breathing. Like like people who are alive breathe. Like they're they're breathing. Um, People who are saved have the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? There's There's not a I'm saved, but I don't have the Holy Spirit. People who are saved, people who are Christians, people who are the redeemed, people who have been born again, have the Holy Spirit. They could not have their eyes open to truth without God the Holy Spirit opening their eyes, unstopping deaf ears, to understand the words of the gospel. So when someone says, I'm a Christian, but I'm also spirit-led, I kind of, I I twitch a little. Because usually what they mean by that is uh, they're associating uh, being spirit-led uh, with, with some sort of phenomenon at work in their life that manifests itself in, quite frankly, wacky ways, and the vast majority of which is foreign to the pages of Scripture. And nowadays, when you hear about people who are spirit-led and spirit-filled, sadly, it refers to people who are doing all sorts of things that you don't find in the pages of Scripture. So barking like dogs and crowing like roosters and rolling in the aisle and all this other stuff and having people come and pray over you and then knock you over and all this other wacky stuff People are putting more faith in the fact that they feel a liver quiver than the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in their life just because of the pages of Scripture. And that's not what we should be putting our faith in. That's not evidence of the Spirit at work in someone's life. Uh, A liver quiver, and uh, it could be evidence of a wide variety of things, and I would suggest you see your physician. Uh, Or it could have something to do with the bad sushi you had the night before. But it, it doesn't have to do necessarily with the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So when you see this in the pages of Scripture, you say, as many as are led, right? Look at verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. But we do well to talk about what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Because there's plenty of wackos and heretics talking about it. And you might look at that and think, if I don't have a liver quiver, I may not be saved. If, if, I, if I don't have these manifestations, if I'm not rolling around and saying cock-a-doodle-doo on a weekly basis, I may not be saved. But that's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what the scriptures teach. 
What we need to do is figure out what Paul had in mind when he penned the words, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Well, I want to work hard not to step on Ryan's toes as he preaches on the preceding verses next week. But I have to ask you to look back just just a little bit, just two verses. Look back at Romans 8 and verse 12. Because in order to understand verse 14, we need to understand what Paul is extrapolating on. Look at Romans 8 and verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But, But he doesn't stop there. He elaborates on that statement in the next verse, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Hopefully it makes a bit more sense now, right? Verse 13 says, living according to the flesh brings about death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? In verse 14. Well, to put to death the deeds of the body, as it says in verse 13. Do do, do you see that? Do you see that? That is what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. How do I know if I'm Spirit-led? What proof do I have that I'm Spirit-filled? Well, my life shows a pattern, not of perfection, but a general pattern, a general upward climb to becoming more like Christ and less like myself. I put to death the deeds of the body. That's what Paul is saying here. And again, it's not perfection, But it's showing that there's a perfect God at work in my life. A perfect God, the Holy Spirit, at work in my life, in my body. Enabling me to put to death the deeds of the body. That is evidence of a spirit-filled life. That's what the text says. Now you might be sitting here saying, that's kind of anticlimactic. I mean, I expected something a little bit more dramatic. A little more bells and whistles. Maybe the lights would go off and on. Or or, or something when it comes to what it means to be spirit-filled. Well, we could turn the lights off and on for if you like. But the text of Scripture in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, tends to to show us that the spirit-filled life is shown and is illustrated by someone who is putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You might say, well, that's... All right, that's not too... That doesn't seem very exciting. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I mean, common sense would be that any, any Christian would be trying to put to death the deeds of the flesh and trying to be more like Christ. That seems like common sense. It doesn't seem like that's a, a result of the spirit at work in my life. Friends, let me tell you something that I've realized. Uh, I'm realizing more and more over the years. Oftentimes, I will look out onto the world, onto society, or something I read in the paper, or something that I just saw happen, and I would think... Common sense would be that that person would not do that. Like, it's just, it's, it's co- not rocket science, it's common sense. But more and more I'm realizing it's not that the person lacks common sense. It's that a lot of what I put in the category of common sense really is the result of God at work in my life. The person doesn't lack common sense, they lack Jesus Christ. And to understand the truth of Scripture, to be able to put to death the deeds of the body, that's a great work of God. Keep your finger in Romans 8 and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. See, you probably don't realize just how much God the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. You might be looking for the wrong evidence of his handiwork. You might be looking for these wacky signs that you hear about or or read about or watch on TV. These wacky supposed signs of the Holy Spirit that don't find their place in the scriptures. That just find their place in the imagination of people. And if you're looking for those things and you don't have those things, you might think, I may not be led by the Spirit. I may not be saved. 
Well, no, it doesn't turn out that you're not saved. It might mean you're not wacky, but, 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 but you, you may very well be saved according to the text of Scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and let's begin in verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you understand what he's saying? He's saying the wisdom that we're speaking, the things that we're teaching you, church at Corinth, uh, they're not understood by rulers of this age. They're not understood by people in high and lofty places and people who are super smart. Had they been, they wouldn't have killed Christ. He's saying if people understood this, if people who were really, really smart, really, really wise, had accomplished a lot in their life, if that's all it took to understand what we're talking about, they wouldn't have put to death Jesus Christ. But since they don't understand the wisdom that we're saying and the wisdom that was preached to them, they reacted as they understood and they repelled. They were, they, they were repulsed by Christ instead of drawn to him. Skip down to verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his what? Spirit. He's saying the reason we know these things is because of the spirit at work in our life. We don't know these things all of a sudden because we're super smart or super nice or, or based on our wide variety of experiences. God revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Do, do, do you see that? Do you see what Paul is saying there? Uh, he's saying that the fact that you understand the Word of God, the fact that, that, that your eyes are open to it, the fact that you read the Word of God, read the truth of Scripture, and have some semblance of understanding, that's a huge evidence of the work of God in your life. That's a huge evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. And it's not downplayed. We shouldn't downplay it because we expect it to look differently or we expect the Spirit to be at work in our lives differently. There may be times when the Spirit will work in our lives differently. But the fact that you open up the Word of God and you understand the words that are there, not perfectly, but you understand the truth of Scripture, God's Word says that's evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. That's what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The fact that you can understand the Word of God... That's a huge evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Now, sometimes evidence of the Spirit-led life shows itself in circumstances. We see that in Scripture as well. For example, in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip being told by the Spirit to go speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he does so, and, all of a, and the Ethiopian, as a result of that, understands the gospel and is saved. Philip would not have known of that opportunity had the Spirit not say, Psst, go to that chariot. He goes to the chariot and he talks to him about the word of God that he's already reading. There's an evidence of the spirit at work in someone's life through circumstances, right? Eight chapters later in Acts 16, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are on their way to preach the gospel in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But we're told that they were prohibited by the spirit from continuing. 
And a few verses later, they uh, have a, a vision and see a man in a vision who asks them to come to Macedonia. So they conclude the Lord had called them to preach the gospel there. How did they know that? Well, they were walking down the road on their way to Asia Minor, and all of a sudden, they were unable to continue. They were unable to continue. It says the Spirit forbade them. The Spirit prohibited them from continuing. Now that does, I mean, what is that? I don't know what that means, how the Spirit, we're not told in the Scriptures how the Spirit forbade them, but we do know this. Luke is writing this after the fact, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. He's looking back on the events that had happened and said, yeah, we came to that, we were on our way and we couldn't continue. Uh, there was a gigantic rock or something, I don't, I don't know what it was, but we couldn't continue. So now that we see what God has done, because when we didn't continue and we went this way instead, a vision appeared to us to go to Macedonia. Then we went to Macedonia and preached the gospel. So we know this was of God, right? How do we know? Because we can look back and see how God arranged our life, how God arranged our ministry. And hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, I remember it was May in 2001 on Mother's Day uh, when a uh, certain young, uh, fairest of them all, a uh, girl by the name at that time of Sarah Graham, came walking into uh, the church that I was attending at the time. And uh, she introduced herself to me and this might have been a little, I mean, it might have been special. I went deaf. I heard the Hallelujah Chorus. It was, it was a pretty magical, <laughs> amazing moment. It was a, yeah, a combination of like the Hallelujah Chorus with Uptown Girl by Billy Joel. It was a weird, <laughs> really weird. But, but anyway, so, so she comes walking in and she says that uh, her car had broken down. And she was on her way to church and got lost and came there. Now a car just broke down. And I said, well, let me take a look at it, which is hilarious. <laughs> Because I don't know squat about cars. But it seemed like the manly thing to do for this pretty young visitor of our church. So I walk over to the car and I open up the hood and I do what guys do. I stare at the engine for the mandatory 12 seconds. Because if you do it too fast, it's, you don't have any hope. If you go too long, then it's, you really don't understand. So you just stare at it for a little bit. And just kind of like, I think I leaned over, I listened. I listened just in case the spirit would want to tell me what's wrong with the car. And then I closed the car hood, and I looked at her, and I said two, two true statements. I said, hey, I can't fix it. I should probably give you a ride home. Yes. And she wasn't from New York City, so I drove her back to where she was working at the time. I took the long way. She didn't know that, but I took the long way. And you can look back and see God at work through seemingly mundane circumstances that started a great thing because now Sarah Graham is now Sarah LaRufa, and she's now my wife. And you can look back and you say, wow, look at how God sovereignly, providentially uh, arranged the fact that her car would break down, that I'm an idiot when it comes to cars, but that I would be able to give her a ride home. This is, this is wonderful that God would arrange that. And you can look back and see God at work in your life. Sometimes evidence of the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life comes through our circumstances. But I'll say this, usually it comes by looking back at them, and I'm a little weary about, telling, about people telling me what exactly God is doing now, right now. Here's why God has me here. Oh, really? Big difference between thus saith the Lord and thus saith the Lord, I think. And the latter one leaves it open to a lot of interpretation that a lot of things can happen, but to say, oh, here's why God has me here. It's like, well, you calm down. Looking back, we can say, this is why God had me there. This is why God put me there. This is how God worked through my life. That's certainly what Luke did as he looked back upon what happened as they were on the road to Macedonia. But you can look back on your life 
and see evidence of God working in your life, that's another evidence of a Spirit-led life. But you know what? What about, is there any way for us to know it today? We just have to wait. You know, we've now been married 12 years, so we met a year before that. So you have to wait 13 years to see the Lord at work in your life. You have to look back. Is there like some mandatory waiting period? How do I know if the Spirit's at work in my life now, today? If you've told us what it's not, you've told us it's not these unbiblical manifestations of the Spirit that you see on TV and in other places. Well, then what is it? Well, you know how you can see this if today, if you're led by the Spirit, not years down the road from now, do you understand the Word of God? This is called illumination. Has God shed light on that which would have remained in the dark were it not for His work in our lives? Do you understand the Word of God? What about you? Do you understand the Word as it's, as it's preached, as it's taught, as you read it? Is there an understanding don't, don't so easily you could fall into the pit of extremes. Well, not, not perfectly. I didn't say perfectly. I just want to know, do you understand it at, at all? Is there a semblance of understanding that you have from the Bible as it's preached, as you read it, as you hear others speak about it? Do you, do you understand the truths of Scripture? If you do, that's not because you're like so super smart. It's because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Don't downplay that. That's a big deal. Illumination is not something you can bring about by flipping a switch. Only God can turn on that light. Only God can turn on that light to show you the truth from Scripture. But more than that, illumination leads to application, right? So it's one thing for me to understand the Word of God. That's encouraging. But we're also told that even the devil understands, right? So it's one thing to understand, but what about applying See, it's illumination leading to application. I read it, I get it, I do it. Not I read it, I get it, and I live my life as if I never read it. I read it, I get it, and I do it. Illumination, application, sanctification. Only as a result of the Spirit's work in our life. Because we're told in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, what knowledge does what? Puffs up. But love edifies. God is really unimpressed with how many facts I can store in my head if they don't leave out, if they don't lead to a love for the Word of God, which is evidenced by me applying it, by me putting off the old man and putting on the new, like we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and following, by me putting to death the deeds of the body, as we see in Romans 8 13. So many things influence us each and every day, right? So many. We've all got pasts. We've all got understandings that we've just brought into, that we, we have because of our experiences, right, wrong, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise. Here's my question. What's the dominating influence in your life? What is the dominating influence in your life? Is it the Word of God? I mean, not perfectly every time, but the dominating influence in your life. Is it based on the scriptures, is it based on God's perfect truth? If so, we have great reason to be encouraged that God is at work in our life. This is more evidence that, that, that uh, Paul is building a case that we'll see. More evidence that we're his. We're told there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're told that, that, that God gives us uh, life by being in Christ Jesus. More evidence. God gives us change. He gives us illumination. He gives us understanding of his word and the opportunity to apply it. 
What about you? What is the dominating influence in your life? Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Reading on in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So, so, so like I said, Paul's building a case here. In the first part of Romans 8, what we looked at last week, and Lord willing, what we'll look at next week, uh, the ruling idea is life. You have life. Romans 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. There's a spirit of life. Uh, verses 5 and 6, same chapter. Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Skipping down to verses 10 and 11. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Uh, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit brings life. Well, we're not under the law. We're no longer condemned, but we're alive in Christ. Yes and amen. But what Paul does here in our text today is he switches gears. He switches gears in our text to talk about something else. It's not just that we're alive, but more than that, but we're also sons. We're not just alive. You can be alive, but distant, right? Like doctors do, do great works to, to, to heal people and to help them to get better, but that doesn't mean they have a necessarily a close relationship with the people that they're, that they're working on. I'm sure they care, but that doesn't automatically mean, you know what, this patient's like a son to me. No, this patient's actually just a patient, and I want to make him better, but I don't, I'm not really inviting him over for Christmas dinner. It gets awkward then. So he's just a patient. He's not like a son to me. You can be alive, but not be close. Here, Paul is saying, not only are we alive, but we have the spirit in us, and we have the spirit of adoption. We are sons. We're told we don't have, look at verse 15. We're told we don't have a spirit of bondage to fear. And we've already been told we've received the spirit of life, but now we're told we've received the spirit of adoption. And Paul continues to build his case in showing us who we are in Christ. He moves from the fact that we're alive to the fact that we're sons. The fact that we're sons. And I understand it's kind of the cooler thing now for more modern translations to now translate that word as children. Um, But there's a reason it was translated as sons. And it's not because the Bible is archaic and it's not because it's chauvinistic. I mean, heck, I've got to make peace with the fact that I'm part of the bride of Christ. All right, you can see me throwing a flag on the play. All right, we've all, things are rough all over, pal. It, it's, it's, not, it's not that the Bible is this old archaic book and said, well, he wrote sons, but for no reason. No, I'm pretty sure, like God, the Holy Spirit, who was indwelling and inspiring Paul to write these words, could have inspired him to write children. But he writes sons for a reason, because there's something very special and very unique, particularly in Roman culture, of what it meant to have sonship. What it meant to have sonship. It's not limited to people who are members of the male persuasion. But it's saying, guess what? All people can have the benefits of sonship in Christ because they've received the spirit of adoption. Listen, not like a son. It's not that we're like sons to God. God isn't looking down from heaven saying, I love Peter as if he were my own son. He says, I love my son, Peter. 
Do you understand? There's a big difference there. I mean, over the years, Sarah and I have had the privilege, particularly while I spent many years in youth ministry, had the privilege of working with many students, um, discipling some. Some were closer to us than others. And there have been some that really are kind of like, like a son to me, spent a lot of time, worked through a lot of things, spent a lot of time in the Word, worked through trials, saw victories, saw falls, saw victories. We've walked that road together. And sometimes they've come back later on in life and said, really, during that, you're, you're like a father to me. And I said, that's, that's so, I, I, look at me, I, I. wow, that God would use anybody in someone else's life like that. Um, and that's really encouraging. It would weird me out if he called me daddy. I'm just going to say that right now. He could say, you're like a father to me, but if he then said, yeah, daddy, it would be like, yeah. Look behind you, there's a line. Wow, you crossed the line. You didn't know there was a line there, but you now called me daddy. I'd lo- the fact that I'm like a father to you is really encouraging. The fact that you called me daddy, I think I got to go. Um, because that's a term that's reserved for my children. Right? My children. Big difference. I'm not like a son to God. You're not like a child of God. If you love Jesus, if you've been saved, you are his child. You're not like a child to God. You are his child. Here in our text today, we're told that. So much so that you can call him daddy. So much so that you can refer to him in the same way Jesus refers to him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays during those final hours and he cries out and he says, Daddy, I'm scared if there's any way any way for you to accomplish your will by letting this cup pass from me, that I don't have to go through what I know I'm going to have to go through. Daddy, help! But it's not my will. It's, it's, it's yours. I love you, Dad. That's, that's the sum total of that prayer. That's not Jesus coming before the Father and saying, Holy God of heaven, sovereign one of the universe, if you would just perhaps grant this to me. There's no formality there. Daddy, I'm scared. When my kids come to me and call me daddy, I've got four kids, um, the oldest of which is 11. And unless he wants to get under my skin, every once in a while he does that, he calls me Pete, which is... <laughs> he gets it from his mom. I mean, you know that, clearly. It's, I mean, But they all still call me daddy. They all still call me... They, they all call me daddy. They call me daddy when they're scared. They call me daddy when they're excited I'm home after having been away. They call me daddy when they want to show me something. They call me daddy as I try to leave the room after tucking them in. You know that happens. You tuck them in. They're like, wait a minute, I have 19 things to tell you. (laughs) They call me daddy. There's no anxiety associated with it. There's no hesitation. There's no formality. It's not pretentious. It's It's daddy. It just rolls off their tongue. It's just who I am. It's, a, it's, it's a, a close, intimate term. They say it all the time. They want to show me something on TV. Do any of your kids do this? They want to show me something. They're like, Daddy, you've got to see this. Watch this. Hey, Daddy, watch this. Watch, it's coming. Look, look, Daddy, here it comes. Here, watch that. It's like, I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. Daddy, watch. Daddy, look. Daddy, you're going to miss it. Daddy, watch that. Like, I'm staring at the TV. Daddy, 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 Daddy. It's who I am. I'm their Daddy. I don't know if you have kids. And furthermore, I don't know if, I mean, if you do have kids, I don't know what your relationship is like with them. Maybe you're enjoying a sweet, 
sweet season of close, tightened parent-child relationships. Or maybe your home is marked with late-night strife and, and quarreling. I don't know what your relationship is like with your dad. Maybe he never missed an opportunity to tuck you in at night. Prayed at your bedside every night. Never missed a baseball game. Was always at the ballet recital or the parent-teacher conference. (sighs) Maybe you were mistreated by him in some awful way. Maybe you never even met the man. But God's word tells us this, that there is no fatherless Christian. No fatherless Christian. We don't have a father figure in God. He's like a dad to me. He's not a mentor. He's not a big brother. A daddy. A daddy in our Lord because of the spirit of adoption we've been given. Let me ask you something. What about you and your heavenly father, your daddy? Do you you have a, a compelling desire to spend time with him? Gosh, I remember that as a kid. I still have it now as an adult with with my earthly father. Do do you? My kids have it for for me. So I see those parallels. Maybe those parallels don't exist in your life. Do you have a compelling desire to spend time with, to get to know, to have a relationship with your heavenly father? Do you miss him when you're far from him and know he's happy to have you back? Do you, are there, th- these are more proofs that the Holy Spirit lives within us, leads us, guides us, and has given us new life in him, this spirit of adoption. He's my daddy. That's my daddy. Here's something else I discovered in studying for this sermon. This is actually the third time I've preached through uh, the book of Romans. I did it twice in youth ministry, um, but I never saw this. I dug a little deeper and learned about what adoption looked like in ancient Roman society, at least in part. So check, check this out. A father in, in ancient Rome basically had sovereign rule and control over his, over his family. He kind of can't go wrong. He does what he wants. If a father decided for some reason he was dissatisfied with his, with his son, didn't like his skill, his character, his work ethic, he can go and go and adopt an orphan... Um, and bring him into the family because he was dissatisfied with his son. Can you imagine that? <laughs> hey, I, th- there's plenty of orphans out there, pal. I'll, I'll adopt one. Watch me. Watch, so help me. I'll adopt one. So a father can leave, leave his home. He doesn't, he doesn't disown his other son, but he then decides, you know what? This son's not making the cut for, for whatever reason. I'm going to go and adopt this son. He finds an orphan. He brings, the son, he brings the orphan home, and there's kind of a trial period, almost like a foster-to-adopt situation, where he sees if it's working out. And then if it does work out, he then adopts this child, and this child, in every way, shape, and form, is now part of this man's family. Um, it was a big, lots of legal proceedings, ain't nothing new under the sun, lots of uh, a law. It was not an easy thing to do. They had to have like seven lawyers or seven, seven people involved because this was the complete, watch this, tell me if you draw any parallels to the Christian life. This was the complete uh, dissolving of this child's past. Completely, whatever was associated with him in the past, it's now gone. It's not added to, it's gone. We're cutting all ties. It's more than just a name change. It's not a formality. It is now gone, and this child now belongs to this man and is in his family as if he always ever was. 
And one more thing, and this blew, just blew my mind. Any debt, any, any financial or legal obligations that was part of this child's life prior to adoption, when he's adopted, wiped away. Gone. The church at Rome reads this and says, we've been given the spirit of adoption. And they read that and they go, wow. I have a father. I have a father I can call daddy. My debt has been wiped away. Oftentimes in Roman society, when that happened, that adopted child would be looked upon by the family and, and society as the favored child. This is one that I chose, right? This is one that I had, but this is one that I chose. Probably made for awkward dinners, but, but you, you, you see my point. And that child would be uh, an heir to everything. That, enti- that man's estate, everything that, fa- that father owned, he would be a recipient of it, and oftentimes the primary recipient of it. We have been given a spirit of adoption. Paul uses the adoption metaphor to help us better understand our heavenly adoption. He draws striking parallels between the two that help us to better understand who we are in Christ. Our security within the family of God because of the sonship we have as children of God. And then as our text concludes, as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now... Our text today speaks nothing of earthly adoption beyond employing it as a metaphor. You can't find it in the text. There's nothing in here about uh, our responsibility, obligation, encouragement, admonition, anything at all when it comes to orphan care. However, it's not too far of a stretch to say that because of the gospel, because of our having been welcomed into the family of God by no merit of our own, that it stands to reason that churches and Christian families should be at the forefront of the adoption of orphans close to home and around the world. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think there's a logical connection there. I think by way of application, wow, to whom much has been given, much is expected, much is required... I think because I've been adopted, there's some sort of, uh, I don't know if responsibility is too too strong of a term, but there's something in me that would say there's got to be something that I've got to do and be at, I should be at the forefront of uh, the care of orphans here and there and way over there. And that's what Dr. Russell Moore says about adoption in his book, Adopted for Life, which I would highly recommend to you. Let me first tell you what it's not. This is not a book of someone who's adopted 39 kids and is trying to make you feel guilty for not adopting one. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? That's usually out there. This is not, that's not, he has adopted two, two children of his own. This is not a guilt-ridden book. I'm so done with guilt-ridden books. I'm done with them. This is not a guilt-ridden book. It's also not like a how-to-adopt book. It's, 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 it's a book about the things that are stirring my heart based on the gospel and based on the text. It's about your adoption into the family of God then he shares stories from his life about how that affected the, their decision to, to adopt and their decision to welcome in two children into their home by way of 
of adoption. Adopted for Life, Russell Moore, Adopted for Life, I would highly recommend it to you. It's a wonderful encouragement to any child of God. He makes the point that it's one thing when the culture in general doesn't get adoption, right? I I mean, they don't have a reference point. Some people in the world, unsaved, have been adopted. The vast majority have not been, right? But every Christian has been adopted. Every Christian has experienced adoption. In some way, shape, or form, we have been adopted. It doesn't have to be adopted by earthly parents, but every Christian has experienced adoption. Our world lives in a place where, our world is in a place in a mentality where if you take in an animal and treat them as a pet, you say you adopted a cat. If you want to contribute to the litter pickup on a highway, you adopt a highway. We have a better reference point. Did, did you understand? We have a better reference point. We have been adopted. It seems uh, when those who love Christ think like the world in this way, it seems as if we miss something about our own salvation. And let me be shamefully transparent with you. Sarah and I were talking about adoption a few years ago. And she asked me if I wanted to adopt, to which I said no. I just I mean, I didn't want to be mean. She just said, do you think we'll adopt? I said, no. I mean, next question, you know, do you think we'll have meatloaf? I mean, like, like it was just, I didn't mean to be trite. I didn't mean to be rude. I didn't mean to be mean. And she said, really, I always thought we'd, I always thought like one day we'd adopt. And it's like, well, this is an excellent plug for pre-engagement counseling. Like, when is this going to come out? Like, real, is there any, let me get out a pen and paper. What else? What else? Because I'm doing nothing towards this and we've not discussed it. So it was a nice time of growth and change in our very sanctifying conversation. And she said, I just always figured we'd adopt. And I said something along the lines, of, I always figured you'd tell me. And then she said, well, I didn't really figure you were against adoption. I'm like, wow, really? So now, now let me, now I'm against it. We're going to, I mean, you're going to paint, paint me in that corner? There's no way out of that hallway. Are you against adoption? You be the guy who's against adoption. I'm not against adoption. You asked me if I thought, anyway, never mind. <laughs> you can see, do you see how it, do you, can you, can you, are you there? You see that conversation taking place? But it was just true. I just never, it it didn't cross my mind. After all, God had blessed us with, at the time, three kids. And we didn't know there'd be another one on the way in the next few years. So that makes four. So I really didn't see the rationale behind us adopting when, again, to be embarrassingly and shamefully frank and transparent with you, God seems to have enabled us to procreate just fine. See, I didn't realize it. But I put adoption in the category of a backup plan. A backup plan that I thought worked out rather nice for all involved. I mean, take a couple that wants kids but can't have them, take a kid who wants parents but doesn't have them, match them up, and everybody's happy. I mean, after all, that or something similar is the story for not all but many, many adoptive families. And then one day it occurred to me during a quiet time. I wasn't reading about adoption. I wasn't just one of those things that, that was just laid on my heart. And that was this. That if God had my attitude about adoption, I would not be saved and neither would you. Because like God doesn't need backup plans. And if he wanted to make himself a half, half, happy, holy family for himself, he could probably snap his holy fingers and it would just happen. If he wanted to make kids of his own and make for himself a people... He would do that. He never lacks for options. So if he said, I'm going to make myself a people. I'm going to make myself a nation. I'm going to make myself a family of God. He could do that. 
He doesn't have this bad, oh, well, I didn't, he, 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 God knows no infertility. God, God knows no, none of the, the, the problems and the sadness that we know in this world. He doesn't, he doesn't associate himself with that. But God doesn't operate with backup plans. The only way I could enter the family of God would be by adoption. And if adoption is a big backup plan and God wouldn't need a backup plan, I'd be lost and so would you. My reason for not adopting betrayed the fact that I really didn't get adoption. Does, does that make sense? I really didn't get it. My adoption by my heavenly father, let alone what I might be called to do in an earthly adoption. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Perhaps you have adopted a child or children and the impetus behind that adoption was infertility. And many long, hard nights hoping and praying to see two lines of purple on a home pregnancy test. But it just didn't happen. And so God used that in your life to adopt a child or children. Listen to me. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a glorious thing. In fact, that, that, that's a wonderful story of, of, of redemption and praise God for it. Nothing wrong with that. However, there is something wrong when we view that scenario as the only or primary reason to consider adoption because it's inconsistent with the way we've been adopted by God. D- d- does that make sense? When we put, oh, adoptions for the, the people who want kids but can't have them. Uh, either because of infertility or they've decided to stop it. Now, that's what adoption's for because it works out nice because they can't have them and there's kids who want parents and that's what adoption is for. Uh-uh. That may be a scenario and a situation in which God moves upon people to, have, uh, uh, to, to grow their family in that way. But it's not the uh, only or primary reason to consider adoption because it's inconsistent with the way we've been adopted by God. Now, I share this because God really convicted me and changed my heart on the matter. Now, we still haven't adopted a child. So it's not, this is not the pastor coming before you and now flipping through a slideshow of all 19 of his adopted children and saying, how could you be so selfish because you didn't adopt one? That's not me. That's not this situation. I share this with you because God really convicted me and changed my heart on the matter. And I think I have a better and, and deeper understanding of my relationship with the Lord. With the Lord, with his having adopted me. We, uh, my heart beats a little faster when I come across texts like this in Romans chapter 8. Because I've thought through what it means to be adopted as a result of what I've just, I've just described to you. And we, uh, what God has called our family to do is to, to be involved. Just like God doesn't call everyone to pack up their bags and head overseas as a missionary, I think he calls each of us to be involved in missions, right, in some way. In going or sending or supporting or praying or paying. Some sort of conscious act of involvement is what we're called to have when it comes to missions. I don't know if we'll ever adopt a child of our own. We were pursuing an opportunity, and then for reasons that are too much to get into right now, it, it, it didn't work out and it fell through. I, I don't know if we'll ever adopt a child, uh, but we will be... By God's grace, we will be involved. We pray for adoptive families. We financially support as God provides the opportunity and the resources. We want to be involved. Listen to me. I hope this doesn't sound mean. It's not because we're charitable. I mean, there's a part of that. We do feel bad. We do, our hearts do ache for children who, are, who lack a family. But charity is not the primary movement behind this. It's because to whom much is given, much is expected, and much is required. And I've been Adopted. So I think it stands to reason, having been adopted ourselves, that Christians would be leading the charge when it comes to orphan care locally, domestically, and 
internationally because we have all experienced adoption. And quite frankly, here's something else that occurred to me. As far as I can tell, on this side of heaven, this is the one task that will get me to, be, to, to understand as closely as possible in my finite mind what it's like to be on God's side of the gospel. Wow. I can't think of anything else, any other human experience in this life that gets me to better understand what it is like on God's side of the gospel. So what about you? Uh, Maybe Dr. Moore's words will affect you as they did me. Maybe the word of God will affect you as it did me. Maybe you're the guy who flinches when your wife raises the issue of adoption because you want your own kids first and you hate yourself for thinking that but think it nonetheless. Maybe you're in your 20s and assume you'll marry after a couple of years in the post-college job force and find a nice girl and have a honeymoon for a few years and then start thinking about getting pregnant. Maybe you're an empty nester or an elderly couple who quite frankly, by the grace of God, make more money than you need. So you you dote on your family or your grown kids or your grandkids and wonder how you can tangibly help the young couple in your small group who ask for prayer every month that they might be parents and also happen to always be absent for church on Mother's Day. Or maybe you're like me. You've got your own biological kids and never really considered adoption because, quite frankly, you can make them yourself just fine. And perhaps you're convicted because you realize the albeit unintentional but nonetheless selfish inconsistency of that view of adoption, particularly as you sit here having received the spirit of adoption by which you can call someone daddy that you have no business calling daddy, apart from having received his sovereign, compassionate, adoptive, saving grace. Think about it. Pray about it. See what God may call and enable you to do and then do it to the glory of God. Wouldn't wouldn't it be cool, though? Just just dream with me. Wouldn't it be cool if Christians were known as, oh, yeah, that's that group that adopts kids. Like, they're big into it. Wouldn't that be cool? I think that would be cool. You should think that would be cool. (sighs) Finally, we look at... As we close, Romans 8, verses 16 and following. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The Spirit of adoption that bears witness with our spirit. That means he testifies that we are children of God. God, when the accuser of the brethren himself, my own sinful nature, or quite frankly any combination of the two, tempts, us, tempts me to doubt my identity in Christ, no matter how loud that accusation is, praise be to God, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption is louder, stronger, and able to remind me that I am, I am a child of God. And if I'm a child, then an heir, a joint heir with Christ, Suffering for his sakes, but all with the promise of being together with him to the praise and glory of his grace. I'm a joint heir with Christ. Because God has adopted me, I'm not like a son, I'm his son. And because he's adopted me, I'm a joint heir with Christ. God has many children, one of which is Jesus, one of which is Peter. Woo! Think about that. A joint heir with Christ. I have coming to me what Christ has. Wow. And it's that spirit that testifies with our own and reminds us of who we are in Christ. We've been adopted. We have a daddy. 
not like a daddy, we have a daddy. We're not like a son, we are children of God. And we praise God for that. Amen. Father in heaven, we come before you thankful for your work in our lives. Thankful for the adoptive saving grace that you've bestowed upon your children. And Father, I want to pray for uh, perhaps people in this room who have not been, uh, who have not entered your family, who know you not, who look uh, on the outside. Lord, would you, uh, even now, would you save souls? Lord, would you work in hearts and minds of your people, Lord, and give them that spirit of adoption that confirms their belonging in the family of God? Would you open their eyes? Would you soften their hearts to receive your saving grace? Would you save souls? Lord, I pray for those of us who are members of your family. Lord, would you uh, encourage us and remind us from the truth in your word that we have been adopted. Lord, we, have, we are not just kind of close to you. We are your kids. You are our daddy, and we can come to you, and we love you, and you love us. And Lord, show us what that means for our walks with you. Show us what that means for uh, orphan care in our world, in our neighborhood, and show us how you would have us apply uh, the word as you have opened it to us, as you've illuminated it, as you've shown us how to apply it, and as you grow us in our sanctification. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.